This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. On this Monday of Holy Week, the Catholic Church in her Liturgy of the Hours or Divine Office has the Office of Readings. And there is a second reading that follows upon a first reading of Scripture. Oftentimes, the second reading is a patristic reading, a reading from, from one of the early doctors of the church. Would you believe that today the reading is from St. Augustine? And so I have my breviary here, and it is by St. Augustine, from a sermon by St. Augustine. And I just want you to hear what the conclusion of this reading is. The Apostle Paul saw Christ and extolled his claim to glory, St. Augustine preaches. He had many great and inspired things to say about Christ, but he did not say that he boasted in Christ's wonderful works in creating the world, since he was God with the Father, or in ruling the world, though he was also a man like us. Rather, he said, let me not boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. St. Augustine then is having us think back on what is written in the Bible here in the letter to the Galatians, and about how Paul could have boasted in lots of things, but he did not want to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christians then, the mystery of the cross is at the very heart of our faith. And we do not think of the cross without the resurrection, nor can we think of the resurrection without the cross. Okay, that it is always together in terms of thinking of the cross and resurrection, what is customarily called these days the Paschal mystery. On the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to St. Augustine, I have a division of two parts. The first is to think about the cross and resurrection in the life of St. Augustine of Hippo. And then the second is the cross and resurrection in the teaching of St. Augustine. I thought it'd be good to begin with his life, okay? Because he came to be uh, a fervent Christian. And I want you to be able to hear something of his life story. All sorts of people are attracted to his life story, especially by reading his great masterwork, The Confessions. It's a work written in 13 books, with the first 10 books that St. Augustine says are about me, and then books 11 through 13 are about scripture. He wrote this work between the years 396 and 400 or 401. And St. Augustine then writes this as a bishop, thinking back on the entirety of his previous life up until the time when he was baptized. Now, sometimes people will hear stories of St. Augustine, and then when they read the confessions, some of those stories will be confirmed, and other stories then will actually be set aside, and they think, oh, actually, that's not the real St. Augustine. So this is where, in terms of returning to how Augustine narrates his life and thinking about the cross and resurrection, Augustine was born to St. Monica and her husband, Patricius, or we could just say Patrick. Monica was a fervent Christian, uh, but at times, uh, as Augustine tells us, she did she did things that weren't so good, okay? Patrick was not a Christian. It was a grace that Monica was able to receive for her husband that Patrick, Patricius, 
uh, was baptized before he died. Okay, but while Augustine, uh, in terms of being born, Monica enrolled her son, Augustine, within the rites of the Catholic Church, but did not have him baptized. When Augustine was a baby, the custom was not to baptize little children. And Augustine, when he then became a bishop, wanted people to follow the custom, though, of baptizing babies. So he says in Confessions chapter 1, okay, so he himself, by the way, tells us his birthday. If you want to celebrate St. Augustine's birthday, it's the Ides of November. It's November 13th. He tells us this in his early dialogue, the De Beata Vita on the Happy Life. Anyway, he says, while still a boy, I had heard about the eternal life promised to us through the humility of our Lord and God, who stooped even to our pride. And I was regularly signed with the cross and given his salt, even from the womb of my mother, who firmly trusted in you. What is Augustine saying here? So he, as a little boy, was growing up with his mother as a Catholic Christian who would regularly sign him, okay? So in terms of uh, parental ways of blessing their children, and that uh, there was a, a right as a part of the extended uh, rights of uh, baptism that you would have a catechumenal right in terms of being salted, okay? You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. So a little bit of salt. Also, Augustine uh, does say that when he was uh, a child, uh, he received the name of Jesus Christ with his mother's milk, okay? And that's very interesting to think of Monica as a Eucharist-receiving Christian who then was able to communicate something bodily to her unborn child, Okay, and then, to her, and then to the nursing child. Okay, so in terms of, of, of nursing the, the little baby Augustine. All right, so you just think about how in terms of from his mother's womb that he had this context of the church and the various sacramental rites. But again, was he baptized? No. He actually fell sick as a boy and he wanted to be baptized, but the family was afraid to baptize him. Why? At that time, they did not have a robust sense of penance, of the sacrament of penance, and so they were afraid of baptizing someone too early. And so he, uh, he was upset, and later looking back on it, he's like, oh, I should have been baptized, okay? And that's why he preaches infant baptism as a child, because in terms of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, how as Catholics do we especially receive the power of the cross? It's in the sacramental life. All right, so it's not just simply reading about this in sacred scripture, but the proclamation of the word is accompanying the rites of Holy Mother Church in terms of the church leading the children of God to God through the sacraments. So St. Augustine then uh, has experiences of the Catholic Church from a young age, okay? In fact, as he says, from my mother's womb, but he himself was not baptized. In the story of the confessions, he isn't baptized until book nine, okay? So 13 books in book nine, then you have the thing about, the, about his baptism in Milan. In confessions book four, he talks about how there should be a proclamation to people. And he speaks of Jesus in this way. He who is our very life came down and took our death upon himself. 
He slew our death by his abundant life and summoned us in a voice of thunder to return to him in his hidden place, that place from which he set out to come to us when first he entered the virgin's womb. There a human creature, mortal flesh, was wedded to him that it might not remain mortal forever. And from there he came forth like a bridegroom from his nuptial chamber, leaping with joy like a giant to run his course. Impatient of delay, he ran, shouting by his words, his deeds, his death, and his life, his descent to hell and his ascension to heaven, shouting his demand that we return to him. Then he withdrew from our sight so that we might return to our own hearts and find him there. He withdrew, yet look, here he is. It was not his will to remain with us, yet he has not abandoned us either, for he has gone back to that place which he never left, because the world was made through him, and though he was in this world, he had made, he came into it to save sinners. To him my soul confesses, and he heals this soul that has sinned against him. Right, now there's a lot there. One of the details is that earlier he had mentioned the Roman god Jupiter, okay? One of the titles for Jupiter is the god of thunder. Well, what he's doing here is showing how the truthfulness of the Son of God, the one through whom all things were made, and we can think about that in terms of John chapter 1, without him uh, nothing came to be. So everything came to be from the Father through the Son, and it was the Son then who, for us and for our salvation, because we had sinned, who comes to us through the womb of the Virgin Mary, that he, in a sense, marries human nature, that, that there's a, this close union of, of God and the flesh, our flesh, and that he, and throughout his life on earth, proclaims the good news, and this culminates in the suffering, death, and resurrection and that he goes back to heaven. Now, St. Augustine emphasizes that God is not simply in a place like other things are in places. I'm here, you are there. God is everywhere. He's not bound by place. All right, so St. Augustine then understands that in the incarnation, when the Son of God came down from heaven, he actually didn't leave heaven. Why? He's God. All right, so that's where in terms of that there was a change here on this earth and that Jesus, when he goes up to heaven, what, is, what are his last words in Matthew's account of the gospel? I will be with you always, even until the end of the world or the end of the age, right, because he's God. So Jesus, who then takes our humanity and has that glorified humanity at the right hand of the Father, he is always with us. And where can we especially find him? If we go deep into our hearts. God, who is most transcendent, the one who um, most is above, is also most imminent, the one most in us. St. Augustine then thinks of conversion as a process of returning to what is most in us, that God wants to be in us, that he wants us to discover him in our soul, okay? The power of the soul, which is made to the image of God. Now, in Confessions Book 7, St. Augustine tells us about some Neoplatonic mystical experiences. So St. Augustine is really, really smart, and he hangs in the smart group in Milan, 
and these are Neoplatonists. And he, in his Neoplatonic philosophy, has some special experiences, okay, where he actually has some sort of experience of the one, okay, of, of, of God. But he can't, he, he can't continue in it. So he's, he, so he, so he's wondering, what, how, well, how can we really get to God? And so in Confessions Book 7, Accordingly, I looked for a way to gain the strength I needed to enjoy you, but I did not find it until I embraced the mediator between God and human man, the man Christ Jesus, who is also God, supreme over all things and blessed forever. Nor yet had I embraced him, though he called out, proclaiming, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nor had I known him as the food which, though I was not strong enough to eat it, he had mingled with our flesh. For the word became flesh, so that your wisdom, through which you created all things, might become for us the milk adapted to our infancy. All right, so remember how earlier he had experienced something of the name of Jesus in his, through his mother's milk? Well, what he's doing is that he's thinking that the eternal word of God in his humility comes to us because we, don't, we cannot have strong food. We need, we're infants, we're babies. And so we need milk. And so the incarnation by coming to us on our level is going down. Okay, you think of God, the almighty God, he comes down to our level. And he continues, nor yet was I humble enough to grasp the humble Jesus as my God, nor did I know what his weakness had to teach. Your word, the eternal truth who towers above the higher spheres of your creation, raises up to himself those creatures who bow before him. So the whole idea of humility and exaltation, that he raises up those who bow before him. But in these lower regions, he has built himself a humble dwelling from our clay and used it to cast down from their pretentious selves those who do not bow before him and make a bridge to bring them to himself. He heals their swollen pride and nourishes their love that they may not wander even further away through self-confidence, but rather weaken as they see before their feet the Godhead grown weak by sharing our garments of skin and wearily flinging, fling themselves down upon him so that he may arise and lift them up. So in terms of where, in terms of Almighty God in the incarnation, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and life. Well, what do you do with a way? You walk on it. And so St. Augustine then has this experience of Jesus, the Almighty God, the eternal Son of God, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That one has now made himself our way. So in order, if you want to go up to heaven, where do you go? You look down. Okay. If you want to go into um, the, um, the transcendent invisible, where do you go? Deep within. Down, within. If you want to go up and out. All right. So that is the mystery of humility that St. Augustine sees is at work in the cross of Jesus. In book nine, Augustine says, I shuddered with awe, yet all the while hope and joy surged up within me at your mercy, Father. It all found an outlet through my eyes and voice when your good spirit turned to us, saying, How long will you be heavy-hearted human creatures? Why love emptiness and chase falsehood? I certainly had loved emptiness and chase falsehood, and you, Lord, had already glorified your Holy One. 
raising him from the dead and setting him at your right hand, whence he could send the paraclete, the spirit of truth from on high, as he had promised. He had sent him already, but I did not know it. Yes, he had sent the spirit, for already he had been glorified in his resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven. St. Augustine is attentive to the reality of this mystery of the cross and resurrection having already taken place and that the Holy Spirit then is at work in our lives to move us more and more to Jesus. Now, Augustine was baptized in Milan on April 24, 387. So if you want to celebrate the conversion of St. Augustine, which some liturgical calendars have, it is April 24th, okay, Saturday, Holy Saturday night. It was a very late Easter, okay, uh, in 387. But late have I loved you. In Confessions 10, uh, where Augustine uh, uh, thinks about things of memory, he concludes uh, with some beautiful paragraphs. He says, How you loved us, O good Father, who spared not even your only Son, but gave him up for us evildoers. How you loved us, for whose sake you deemed it no robbery, who deemed it no robbery to be your equal, was made subservient, even to the point of dying on the cross. Alone of all, he was free among the dead, for he had power to lay down his life and power to retrieve it. For our sake, he stood to you as both victor and victim, and victor because victim. For us, he stood to you as priest and sacrifice, and priest because sacrifice, making us sons and daughters to you, born of you, instead of servants, by serving us. With good reason is there solid hope for me in him, because you will heal all my infirmities through him who sits at your right hand and intercedes for us. Were not so, I would despair. Many and grave are those infirmities, many and grave, but wider reaching is your healing power. We might have despaired, thinking your word remote from any conjunction with humankind, had he not become flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right, so what St. Augustine is doing is showing the purpose of the cross and that there's something in terms of the victor, that Jesus is victor because he was victim. And he's priest because he's sacrificed. So again, it's always humility that God lifts up the lowly. God lifts up the lowly. And it's especially Jesus that is lifted up, the one who suffered for us. Later in this book, 10 of Confessions, filled with terror by my sins and my load of misery, I had been turning over in my mind a plan to flee into solitude, but you forbade me and strengthened me by your words. To this end, Christ died for all. You reminded me that they who are alive may live not for themselves, but for him who died for them. See then, Lord, I cast my care upon you that I may live, and I will contemplate the wonders you have revealed. You know how stupid and weak I am. Teach me and heal me. Your only Son, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, has redeemed me with his blood. Let not the proud disparage me, for I am mindful of my ransom. I eat it, I drink it, I dispense it to others. And as a poor man, I long to be filled with it among those who are fed and feasted. And then do those who seek him praise the Lord. Augustine, remember here, is a bishop. So he's writing as a bishop, looking back on his life, and that he sees that, um, that Jesus is here to teach him and to heal him. And he's especially, that power of the cross and resurrection is present in the Holy Eucharist. 
Okay, I eat it, I drink it, and as a bishop, I dispense it to others. Well, he always then understands that he's a poor man, someone who is in need of the Eucharist, of Jesus himself. Right, so uh, Augustine had been ordained a priest in the city of Hippo Regius, also usually, usually called Hippo. Hippo means port. It's the royal port in North Africa in 391. And he was made coadjutor bishop to Bishop Valerius in 395. And after Valerius' death, Augustine became Bishop of Hippo in 396. He did many sorts of uh, writings and teachings and preaching uh, for all of his years. Uh, he died on August 28th, 430, while the Vandals were besieging his beloved Hippo. Okay, so in terms of his life. And so his, his feast day is August 28th. St. Monica's feast day is placed the day before, August 27th. Okay, so that was part one, the cross and resurrection and the life of St. Augustine. Now I have some of the greatest hits from his teaching. So part two. I'm beginning with his masterwork on the Trinity. So in terms of, of Augustine's writings, we have about five million words from Augustine, about five million words from Augustine. And some of the works are some of the most influential works in world history. Okay, so Confessions, On the Trinity, uh, City of God, On Christian Doctrine. Uh, in terms of his sermons, well, if you add up all the different kinds of sermons, it'd be about 900 sermons. All right, so just law, uh, he probably preached about 6,000 times, but we have that many sermons extant from him. So just many, many writings. Sometimes he's known for the different controversies. So the, uh, the Manichaean controversy, the Donatist controversy, uh, the uh, Pelagian controversy, uh, you know, just one controversy after another, but he did, he did much. Anyway, I want to begin with On the Trinity. It's a work in 15 books. And in terms of the cross and resurrection, especially you could go to books four and 13 of this great work On the Trinity. In book four, by the way, he sees that the resurrection of Jesus is for both our soul, the inner man, and our body, the outer man, in the sense that, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is both sacrament and example. Sacrament in terms of healing our soul, what he calls the inner man. And so right now we can experience the power of Jesus' resurrection by grace, the soul, experiences that what, what he calls a sacrament, the sacrament of the resurrection. And then example, in terms of that it's for the outer man, our bodies, that we will rise from the dead. So that Jesus' resurrection is at work now in terms of our soul, and then at the end of time in terms of the raising from the dead. That's in book four. I'd like for us to look at book 13 just for a bit, because he contrasts power and justice Power and justice. The world is sometimes obsessed with power. Who has power? Well, actually, the devil, in some ways, has quite a bit of power in this world. And so what the cross teaches us is that God's justice is greater than the devil's power. St. Augustine says in book 13 of, on the Trinity, but the devil would have to be overcome not by God's power, but by his justice. What, after all, could be more powerful than the all-powerful? Or what creature's power can compare with the creator's? The essential flaw of the devil's perversion 
made him a lover of power and a deserter and assailant of justice, which means that men imitate him all the more thoroughly the more they neglect or even detest justice and studiously devote themselves to power, rejoicing at the possession of it or inflamed with the desire for it. So it pleased God to deliver man from the devil's authority by beating him at the justice game, not the power game, so that men too might imitate Christ by seeking to beat the devil at the justice game, not the power game. Not that power is to be shunned as something bad, but that the right order must be preserved, which puts justice first. All right, all sorts of people experience injustice in this world and do not simply go to, to matters of power. Look first to God's justice. Seek first the justice of God, because it's the justice of God that raises Jesus Christ from the dead. All right? The power of God is shown forth in the weakness of the cross and then the justice of having Jesus risen from the dead. Right now, in terms of a somewhat playful way of thinking about this, St. Augustine uses the image of a mousetrap. Okay, so the devil uh, is uh, uh, an intelligent creature, but the devil didn't know some things. And the devil thought that he conquered Jesus because, after all, our Lord died on the cross. But the cross was like a mousetrap. Okay, St. Augustine says in Sermon 263, the devil was exultant when Christ died. And by that very death of Christ was the devil conquered. It's as though he took the bait in a mousetrap. He was delighted at the death as being the commander of death. What he delighted in, that's where the trap was set for him. The mousetrap for the devil was the cross of the Lord. The bait he would be caught by, the death of the Lord. And Jesus rose from the dead. All right, so this is a variation of what you find earlier in St. Gregory of Nyssa, who has the image of a fish hook and some bait on a fish hook, okay? So that you have uh, the sense of a little bit of bait in terms of flesh. And then uh, a creature then takes it, okay? So like a, uh, a, a fish, but for St. Augustine, it's a mousetrap. So he, he, uh, the cross then shows that uh, the mouse of the devil took the bait of Christ's flesh and then is caught because, because he didn't realize that what he had was God enfleshed. And God cannot be um, uh, just simply taken down to the depths of hell without God's justice shining forth. All right, so uh, by the way, there's a, a beautiful painting of the Annunciation in the Cloisters Museum in Manhattan, New York. And uh, off to the right of the triptych is St. Joseph during the Annunciation making a mousetrap. Okay. So in terms of, of the sign of uh, the cross as a mousetrap. Now another image for the cross is in terms of a teacher's chair. St. Augustine preaches on the entirety of the Gospel of John. It's 124 tractates, on, so tractates or homilies on the Gospel of John. The the first set is more in terms of preaching, and the second set, they say, is more in terms of, of an oral delivery that's not, uh, not really the liturgical preaching in a church as we're familiar with usual preaching. 
Anyway, when he looks at Jesus uh, caring for his mother from the cross, he shows that it's like a teacher and a chair. So uh, traditionally, teachers would sit down in a chair. That was a sign of their authority. And so at universities, sometimes certain universities will talk about this person holds a such and such chair, all right, because of the authority of the chair. And then you think, oh, the chair of St. Peter. So in terms of uh, uh, that chair, because it's a teaching authority in the, in the church, when the Pope speaks from Peter's chair in full solemnity. Right now, St. Augustine says in Tractate 119 on the Gospel of John, the good teacher does what he thereby reminds us ought to be done, and by his own example instructed his disciples that care for their parents ought to be a matter of concern to pious children, as if that tree to which the members of the dying one were affixed were the very chair of office from which the master was imparting instruction. St. Thomas Aquinas, by the way, loved that image of the cross as a chair. So he quotes it several times. So in terms of Christ teaches us from the chair, and here what St. Augustine does is he just says, um, in terms of Jesus uh, uh, taking care of his mother, so woman, behold your son, uh, son, uh, behold your mother, right? So that, that, he, that he shows care and that how we then can care for our parents because Jesus teaches us and the cross is, is like the teacher's chair. Now, in terms of uh, another great work on Christian doctrine, which is in four books, in book one, St. Augustine contrasts the fall in Eden with the healing of wisdom incarnate on the cross. So St. Augustine, again, you have this theme of pride and humility. So because man had fallen through pride, wisdom applied humility to his cure. We were deceived by the wisdom of the serpent. We are set free by the folly of God. On the one hand, while her true name was wisdom, she was folly to those who took no notice of God. On the other hand, while this is called folly, it is in fact wisdom to those who overcame, overcome the devil. We made bad use of immortality and so ended up dying. Christ made good use of mortality so that we might end up living. When a woman's mind was corrupted, the disease entered in. From a woman's body preserved intact, health, and salvation issued forth. That our vices are cured by the example of his virtues belongs to the same list of contraries. Now, as regards homeopathic remedies being applied to our limbs and wounds, examples are that those led astray through a woman were set free by one born of a woman, human beings by human being, mortals by a mortal, the dead by death. Those who are not held back by the necessity of completing a work just begun from reflecting on many other instances of the sort, will appreciate how well furnished the Christian medicine cupboard is with both contrary and homeopathic remedies. Right, so St. Augustine then is thinking about how we need healing. The Latin word, one of the Latin words for healing is salus. So salvation is a type of healing. And that Jesus heals our wounds, the wounds especially of our heart, through the cross and resurrection. And he does this because he's God enfleshed. Okay, so sometimes people will talk about the cross of Jesus and they actually don't mean that he's God. Well, that would not make sense to Augustine or to any Catholic Christian because the wonder of the cross is that this is God enfleshed. And he then who knows our sufferings 
takes upon himself our sufferings, and he knows that, that in the Garden of Eden, that, uh, that there was the wisdom of the serpent, okay? Because, because the serpent was tricking Eve. Oh, you will be like gods if you take this. And, and so then we, uh, humanity, the human race fell because of that, uh, that sin. So the cross, the wood of the cross then, restores, in fact, it gives more than what was given in the Garden of Eden. Because it's Jesus who heals us in our sinfulness and wants us to know that in terms of, of the punishment of death for that original sin, that he dies for us. So he, the just man, you know, that he is the mediator between the just God and unjust human beings. And he, as, he becomes the just man to unite the just God and we and us who are unjust. Right now, another work is Letter 140 to Honoratus, and St. Augustine calls this a book, a book on the grace in the New Testament. And uh, what, what St. Augustine does there is he goes to that psalm, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Remember that Jesus cries us out from the cross, it's, it's the beginning of a psalm. And St. Augustine says, in order that he might, by the way, St. Augustine uh, if he uh, were living in this age, he would get lots of email questions and he would reply. So the, this letter is in response to five questions that Honoratus asks. Augustine was asked lots of questions and then he would reply. All right, so, so in terms of uh, today, sometimes people get email questions. Augustine would be someone who would reply. Okay, so, so he, he, he always, even though he was a busy man, he would take time to reply. So at that time, uh, he didn't have email. All right, but he wrote this letter, uh, letter 140. In order that he might reveal the grace of the New Testament, which does not pertain to temporal, but to eternal life, Christ the man certainly did not, therefore, have to be recommended to us by earthly happiness. Hence, there is his subjection, suffering, the scourges, the spittle, the insults, the cross, and as if he had been defeated and overcome, death itself. In order that those who believe in him might learn the sort of reward for piety they ought to seek and hope for from him whose children they had become. Otherwise, people might regard the service of God as something of great value as a means for those who served him to seek to attain earthly happiness while casting aside and scorning their faith because they judge it worthy of only so lowly a reward. Augustine's point is that we become Christians not because of some earthly reward. After all, we may die by martyrdom that we want to give up our lives. It's not, it's not because of an earthly reward, okay? He did not have what's called today the gospel of prosperity, that he wanted to be able to suffer with Jesus because our reward is great in heaven, All right? So, um, so then you get into this psalm. Hence, Christ the man and the same God, by whose most merciful humanity and whose form of a servant we ought to learn what we should scorn in this life and what we should hope for in the next, took up in his passion, in which his enemies thought that they were great and victorious, the cry of our weakness, by which our old man was crucified at the same time, in order that the body of sin might be done away with. And he said, God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That Jesus, in saying this, takes upon himself our cry, because the Son is always with the Father. The Son is always with the Father. 
But Jesus begins the psalm, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? And because that's our cry. Jesus, who is the head of the church, is not ashamed to identify with his body. He is the head. We are the body. You can think about uh, Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Right? So St. Augustine loves that because it is Jesus, the risen Lord. He is risen from the dead. He says, why are you persecuting me? What is Saul doing? He's persecuting the body, the church. Or in terms of Matthew 25, 31 to 46, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Well, that's Jesus's body here on this earth that goes hungry, that goes thirsty. Jesus is there and he is head. In terms of our head in heaven, he identifies with us his body. Right, Sermon 242, St. Augustine says, go back to the word. Go back to, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So John chapter 1. And consider what it means for that one to rise again. Because having raised up his own flesh, he will also raise up yours. The reason you see he wished his own to rise again was to preserve you from failing to believe that yours would rise again. Right? Why did Jesus rise from the dead? So that we might rise from the dead. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, we place our faith in him who will raise us from the dead. Lots of Christians have so spiritualized salvation that they do not realize the creed, the very basic articles of the faith, and that we believe in the resurrection of the body. That there is a resurrection of the dead that is bodily. It's a glorified body different from this. But it's our bodily resurrection that Jesus, risen from the dead, wants us to know that our tombs will be empty. That we will rise with him. That is our Christian faith. And St. Augustine, by the way, said at no other point in the, in the Christian faith is it more ridiculed. After all, the Neoplatonists, what do they want to do? Generally speaking, they want to get away from the bodiliness. Ew, you know, bodiliness. Ew, right? Whereas St. Augustine, the word was made flesh. And he was made flesh, not so that we then could go up to heaven without our bodies, but that we could go up to heaven in bodily form, in a glorified bodily form. And you think, oh yes, this Jesus risen from the dead ascends to the right hand of the Father, bodily, taking our human nature there. Or we can think about Our Lady assumed body and soul into heaven. You know, that, that we are to think about the reality of this mystery at work for us. Now my last text before we have questions and answers is from the conclusion of the Sermon 258 where he goes to the example of St. Thomas the Apostle. Remember, St. Thomas the Apostle wasn't there on that, that Easter Sunday night and said that he wouldn't believe unless he touched. So, so St. Augustine then uh, has a preaching, the sermon on this. And he says, wasn't Thomas a man, one of the disciples, just a man, the crowd? His fellow disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. And he himself said, unless I touch, unless I put my finger in his side, I will not believe. The evangelists are telling you this and you don't believe? 
The world believed them, and the disciple didn't. About them, it says, their sound has gone forth to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Their words go forth. They reach the ends of the earth. The whole world believes. They all tell this one man, and he doesn't believe. St. Augustine continues, he wasn't yet the day which the Lord had made. Remember the psalm, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it, which is so often sung during Easter. What is that day? That day is especially one reborn in the resurrection, one who has faith in Jesus Christ risen from the dead. When you have that, you yourself are like the day. Okay, so he wasn't yet the day which the Lord had made. There was still darkness in the deep, in the depths of the human heart. That's where the darkness was. Let him come, let the head of this day come and say patiently, mildly, not angry, not angrily because he's the doctor. Come, he says, come, touch this and believe. You said, unless I touch, unless I put my finger in, I will not believe. Come, touch, put in your finger and do not be unbelieving, but trusting. Come, put in your finger. I was aware of your wounds. I preserved my scars, especially for you. Think about Jesus in terms of our own, you know, our own frailty in the faith, saying this to us. I was aware of your wounds. I preserved my scars, especially for you. So St. Augustine continues, but certainly by putting in his hand, he completed his faith. What, after all, is the complete fullness of faith is that we should neither believe that Christ is only a man nor believe that Christ is only God, but both man and God. That's the fullness of faith because the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So this disciple was offered the scars and the limbs of his Savior to touch. And when he touched them, he exclaimed, my Lord and my God, he touched the man he recognized God. He touched flesh. He directed his gaze to the word because the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This word let his flesh be hung on a tree. This word let nails be hammered into his flesh. This word let his flesh be transfixed with a spear. This word let his flesh be laid in a tomb. This word raised up his flesh, offered it to the gaze of the disciples to look at, presented it to their hands to be touched. They touch, they exclaim, my Lord and my God. This is the day which the Lord has made. All right, questions, comments? <laughs> yes. As we were reading from On the Trinity, we talked about not looking at um, power, but God's justice to the effect of what I believe was to address injustice. Could you expand on that? And how can we like, actually do that if we witness injustice in our own communities and organizations? Great. Okay. So um, lots of people today are influenced by Nietzsche, who has a will to power, and various kinds of of discourses, different kinds of things that go on in the world are matters of power. And so what makes right? Might makes right. And then people then will look at injustices um, simply in terms of power controls. So uh, whoever has the power then can determine what is right. Okay, so 
all sorts of things come, come about because of power. What St. Augustine sees is that the cross is uh, our victory not because of a display of divine power, but a display of divine justice. Because the devil was one who was all about power without justice. Right, so then you think about, okay, what, uh, what about things in terms of the world today when you see injustice? Do not just simply think the answer is simply have more power. The answer is to have justice. Right, do you see that there is a difference between justice and power? You could have someone who is powerful and just, but you could have someone who is powerful and unjust. God is all-powerful and all-just. And what he chooses to do for our salvation is to become weak, to humble himself. And we see that at the cross. So, in terms of when you look at injustices in the world, that you think what we need is God's justice. Work for God's righteousness. And to be able even to lay down your life for that. And that, at times, can change structures of power in the world. It can, right? But it's not simply a matter of we just need more power, right? We need more justice. If you see injustice, what you need to correct it is justice. And at times then, uh, you'll see how the power will come about. But sometimes people uh, will too quickly go to things of power to correct injustice where they need to go to matters of justice to correct injustice. Right, yes? I don't want to confuse the justice part. How does mercy fit into that? Great. Okay. So um, mercy, rather than going against justice, is something extra. So this is where, in terms of, think about the cross again. And, and God wins us by the justice of the cross, but it's a mercy to us. Because who put Jesus to death? Sinners. We are the beneficiaries. So this is where in terms of, so the contrast uh, earlier was between justice and power. Mercy is, in a sense, the great, um, uh, the, great, uh, the great wonder of God's justice at work. So one idea of justice is a righteousness. And what God's mercy does is, um, St. Augustine's called the doctor of grace, that we who sinned then, um, receive the grace of Christ in our soul, that he wins us for himself because of this, because of this justice of God, which for us, though, is, well, we're the, we're the ones who sinned. So it was, it was justice for Christ, um, and that's mercy for everybody else. Yeah. Okay, other questions? Yes. This is something that I've never been quite able to square myself. Probably because I grew up among a lot of Protestants where they talk about Jesus being made sin in the sense of a penal substitutionary atonement. And that in the crucifixion, that he was utterly cut off from the Father. And that's why he said, uh, why have you forsaken him? Yep. But Obviously, in his divinity, he can't be separated from the Father. So what exactly is going on there? In what sense does he become sin? Okay. 
Yes, right. Take that sin unto himself, and in what sense does he become separated from the Father? Okay, great. Okay, so I, uh, I'm not a Protestant, so I, can, uh, so I can, cannot ex, um, explain, and there are variations of, you know, you, you say in terms of your, the Protestant uh, experience, the, having different Protestants say this. So what I want to affirm is that uh, St. Paul says uh, to the Corinthians, um, God made him to be sin, uh, so... Uh, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He who did not know sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, so, so in terms of well, what does that mean to become sin? That he so lowered himself that he not only took upon himself our weak flesh, but also the punishment for sin. So he who did not know sin became sin, became the, the very punishment of, of sin. Right, so you can compare that to from what St. Paul says to the Corinthians to also the Galatians, that everyone who hangs upon the cross is accursed. Okay, that um, everyone who hangs on the tree is, is cursed. That Jesus takes upon himself the punishment of all sin. Okay, so Lamb of God who take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world all sin, right? So he experiences then that punishment due to sin. Um, uh, so there are certain Protestant theologies that follow a canonic approach that is from a, more in terms of a 19th century way of thinking that God evacuates his divinity uh, so that you have uh, that Jesus let, lets some of the lets his divine prerogatives aside. Um, that is not the traditional way. This is not St. Augustine's way. Again, St. Augustine, you know, Jesus is still God. So when he when he disputes with this with this pagan by the name of Volusian, Volusian says, How could God, who created the whole universe, the whole cosmos, how could God make himself little and tiny in a little baby, in a baby body with a baby wailing? How could God do that? And Jesus says, well, actually, God did not leave. Uh, so that the union there in that human nature doesn't mean that he stopped being God. Okay, And so that baby really is God. But, he, but God doesn't collapse himself in. And so what he thought uh, is that sometimes people think in two materialist ways. So that, that Jesus remains fully God with the Father. Um, but it's this one, this man, this man is God. And, uh, and so that the Son cannot, the Son is always with the Father. And so then, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For St. Augustine, it's taking upon his lips the body's cry for help. Okay. Yeah, so, so that, that the Father never abandons the Son in terms of the eternal Son is always with the Father. Okay? And Jesus says, yeah, my Father and I are one, or my Father's always with me. I, so, so to be able to, to see that unity. But there are different spiritualities and traditions, some from the 16th century, some actually more in terms of modern theology from the 19th century and, and so forth where you have other variations that are uh, just not the 
not our tradition. Okay, good. Another question. Yes. Um, from the excerpt on the ninth book of Confessions, it says that Jesus has already sent out the Holy Spirit apparently because of his death and resurrection. Yes. And what does that mean about the significance of baptism? How is that a different reception of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's already active in our lives by our baptism. Right, okay, so this is where in terms of the mystery of the cross and resurrection, that Jesus risen from the dead gives the Holy Spirit. So you can think about, in John's Gospel account, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes upon those disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. So Jesus wants the church to have the Holy Spirit. And then after he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, you have the Pentecost sending the Holy Spirit. With all these mysteries, how do we receive? How do we receive? It's the sacramental life. So this is where in terms of, again, uh, having a robust Catholic understanding that, by, um, that it's by baptism that you enter into the life of Christ. Okay, St. Paul says this in terms of Romans and, uh, and Colossians and different ways you can think about uh, that it's by baptism so the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, um, and there are different movements of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but the first sacrament is the sacrament of baptism. And so you can think about how we're on Monday of Holy Week, and lots of people are preparing to receive baptism for, uh, for the night of Holy Saturday, Okay, so in terms of the Easter Vigil, and how the Holy Spirit will be especially active then uh, in, that, in those sacraments. Okay, So... Um, and then in terms of Christian life is the baptismal life, so that you can always call forth the power of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and let the fire of your love burn within them. Okay, so, so, the, so the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, and, and the, what is most powerful is the working of the sacraments. So you think about baptism. But uh, the Eucharist, which is the highest, the greatest of all sacraments, all sacraments are ordered to the Eucharist, because that really is the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see that, uh, that the Holy Spirit is at work, you know, there. Yeah. So like baptism, that's what they call sanctifying grace. Yeah, so in terms of that grace, which sanctifies us, so heals and elevates us, uh, that grace comes to us uh, powerfully in the sacrament of baptism. And then that, that grace then in different ways uh, comes in the baptismal life, in the Christian life. Okay, so the sacraments in different ways communicate that sanctifying grace, the grace that makes us pleasing to God. Good, yes? So um, among evangelicals today, we hear this thing um, about this like, born-again experience. Yes. And like among Augustine, you have like the beginning of faith as a grace. Yes. So when does faith begin? Does it begin with baptism or does it begin with this beginning of faith? Well, how, how, how would that Okay, happen? that's great. So the, um, the theological virtue of faith is a gift from God. The, you, uh, so uh, St. Augustine has a work called the De Utilitate Credendi on the usefulness of believe, believing and other works, or the Enchiridion on faith, hope, and charity, which is mostly just on faith. Um, but uh, he, he writes about faith quite a bit. Faith is a work from God, and what usually happens is that faith is given before baptism. All right, And it's actually important 
to have that gift of God before baptism because that is what leads people to baptism. So St. Augustine then experiences in his lifetime God's working within him. And God, this is, this is mysterious in different ways. Uh, but he, um, he recognized how as a little boy, he, he, the name of Jesus was just very important to him. Okay, and that's why he, like, he loved Cicero's Latin work, but he never found the name of Jesus in Cicero. And so, so, uh, so faith in different ways is at work in people. And uh, particularly when, uh, when there's not an infant baptism, that you need faith, actually, to approach the, to approach the sacrament of baptism. So God, uh, God can get that at work within our souls. Right. So the faith that exists then is real. Like that's yep. Oh, yeah. And so this is why the church uh, recognizes the faith of catechumens and celebrates the faith of catechumens. So if you have an adult catechumen who, God forbid, uh, dies before baptism, that one receives a Christian burial. Right? So that, that the catechumens are in a special way already are, are seen as, as bearers of faith. That's right. So, uh, so uh, do we have any announcements? Sadie or anything? I'm going to let you praise God and then I'll come up there. Okay. All right. So how about we praise God with the glory be and I give you a blessing. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now and shall be. May the peace and blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down to you. May it be forever. Amen.